0: The way I look at it is we all only have one life, and you should do the hardest thing. (laughs) Make it a challenge for yourself.
1: I'm Becky.
2: And I'm Rowan. And welcome back to After Office Hours where we get to know engineering professors outside of the classroom.
1: And hear about their passions, interests, and the stories of how they got to where they are today.
2: Hi, everyone. Today, it's a pleasure to have Dr. Mark Sommer here with us. He's an associate professor in the BME department, as well as in the departments of neurobiology and psychology and neuroscience. He's actually um, also the director of undergraduate studies for the BME department, so you may know him from that.
1: He's an incredibly approachable person, and you can just tell from this conversation how much he cares about the people that he works with, the people that he surrounds himself with, and the students that he works with and mentors.
2: Yeah, and I think because of that, he has such a positive impact on students and his colleagues as well. So I encourage any new engineers to Duke or any engineers who have been here to sort of reach out to him sometime and get to know him. He's an awesome person.
1: Absolutely. In this conversation, we dive into a little bit of his story, how he got to where his position is today at Duke, and a little bit about the research he does in his lab. It's great to have him here today with us. Dr. Summer. thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Um, I guess I wanted to get started by just noting that, so you did your undergrad in engineering, you did a PhD in engineering, you're currently the director of undergraduate studies for engineering. So as a kid, were you, did you always like see yourself as an engineer? Um, was that something you were interested in? Were you big Well, that's a really
0: good question. Um, Actually, no, not so much. Whenever my dad, you know, wanted to work on the car, I went and did something else. (laughs) Um, I was a very bad kid in that way. But I gradually um, came to like that. Um, When I was a kid, I was more of a biologist, actually. Um, I grew up in kind of the suburbs of Minneapolis, St. Paul. And I I don't know, everything... there were kind of developments going up around us. So it was still kind of ponds and some forests that were gradually getting cleared away, but it was still very wild. And so we would spend a lot of time in the backyard seeing monarch butterflies and walking sticks and lizards and all sorts of things. And I just really fell in love with biology. Um, So when I went to college, uh, uh, originally I wanted to do medical school so, but I also was, you know, getting a, a growing interest in engineering and I knew that, you know, I was pretty good at physics and math. Um, my family, you know, was kind of lower middle class and it was kind of expected, you know, if you're good at technical things, you should do something that, you know, gave you a career and engineering or medical school is a good for that. So I, that's, I guess one of my motiva- motivations for getting into engineering was kind of doing something I knew I was good at um, and that could you know, kind of help my career just in general and make the best of my talents, I guess, um, from a family perspective and what's kind of expected. Uh, but at the same time, I still loved biology and biology was kind of my passion. So what I actually did as an undergrad, we didn't have a biomedical engineering major at the place I went. I went to Stanford in the 80s and they didn't have that for undergrads. Um, So I kind of made my own. I did a double major in biology and electrical engineering. (laughs) So that's the best I could do. Um, So I kind of got to see both worlds and still got to fully immerse myself in biology as well as pick up on the engineering and kind of discover that I, I was pretty good at that um, and really grew to love the electrical engineering side, especially the kind of the more theori- theoretical aspects of signal processing and information theory. which And that all led me to kind of combining the two and um, doing brain research, which is what I do now.
2: Wow, that sounds really exciting. I <laughs> It's really interesting how um, you sort of found a way to recreate BME before it was an option, I guess, for you. <laughs> in the 80s, yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, there were of course some universities that had bioengineering degrees at that time, but where I went wasn't one of them. So, um just kind of did it myself, and nobody told me I couldn't, so I just tried. <laughs> <laughs> it just it was a lot of work and overloading, but um it was it was really fun. I'm glad I did it that way. Could
1: you give us a little insight into what your time during undergraduate was like?
0: Oh, uh I mean, it was a lot of fun. I actually went my first year to Texas A&M University. Um, I was, you know, from, I was a Yankee from the North, uh, from Minnesota and South Dakota. I went to high school in South Dakota. And, you know, when I applied for colleges, undergraduate, um, kind of applied everywhere. I didn't really have very good SAT scores. Um, cause I went to high school, like I said, in South Dakota and nobody else in my high school took the SATs. Um, it was a town of about 3,000 people and about 70 people in my class. So to, to actually take the SATs, I had to get up at 4 in the morning, drive, drive 100 miles through an ice storm Wow. to, wow. to this a city called Aberdeen, South Dakota, where I took the SATs. It started at 8, eight in the morning and, and somehow, <laughs> so I got okay scores, but um, even in the best of circumstances, you know. I probably wouldn't have scored enough to get into Duke or MIT um, or any place I dreamed of going. But Texas A&M offered me a full ride, so uh, I was able to go my first year um, for free to Texas A&M. So it was great, and for my family reasons, that was really fortunate. Right. Uh, but then after a year, I, I guess I wanted something bigger, so I just I tried a transfer application and I just applied to Stanford kind of on a whim. And somehow I got in. And so I, awesome. Stan- so I went to Stanford for a sophomore year on up. And uh, so I, you know, I always felt very fortunate about it. And I felt like I was in college to learn. So I, I was kind of a geek, I guess, and really st- <laughs> studied a lot and took it seriously. Also had a social life. Um, it was the 80s. Things are kind of crazy, um, but <laughs> it was still a lot of fun. And made a lot of of great friends, too.
2: Yeah, I guess I was curious about that, too. You know, it sounds like you um, really took advantage of your academic opportunities um, when at Texas A&M and Stanford. I wanted to ask, you know, what did you do for fun as an undergrad?
0: Ah, uh, what did I do for fun? (laughs) Well, I was really into music. Um, So I, you know, at the time I played saxophone and guitar. Oh, wow. So so I was always, um, you know, I kind of got into any band thing that I could uh, while I was an undergraduate, there's a, you know, Stanford has a pretty famous marching band, um, uh, but I didn't have time for that sort of commitment. But I did other other things um, and just kind of with guitar, you know, I kind of did a lot of songwriting on the side, things like that, kind of artistic output. <laughs> and that's really cool. Yeah. And
1: uh, do you still play today?
0: I do, but I'm a little too busy now to <laughs> do it as much as I used to. But I I miss it. Yeah. I I was never very good. It was just kind of a creative outlet, you know, half the people in college play guitar. So (laughs) (laughs) what can you do? It's still fun.
1: So during your undergrad, uh, you mentioned that you were into biology. And as you got into electrical engineering, as you were getting ready to graduate, did you kind of have a plan for what was next?
0: Yeah, great question. You know, I think one thing that undergraduates have to kind of keep in mind is that things are always evolving. And, you know, as DUS, I see people coming in as first-year students with everything planned out to the last, you know, every class of every semester and what they're going to do, you know, 10 years down the line. And it doesn't always work that way, especially as we've seen in 2020. uh, Things can intrude, including pandemics and other things, but also just within yourself, your interests can change. And I think a person should be open to that. And explore new things if they find maybe their passion waning in one field and getting you know growing in another so for me i you know I, I took the mcats i still was determined to go to med school but when i was a sophomore i really started to get into lab research and i didn't know anything about what scientists did you know i didn't know any scientists growing up my parents aren't academics and but I kind of got into it. Um, I happened to have a neighbor uh, my one of my parents friends just lived down the hill who worked at Medtronic in Minneapolis. Wow. Yeah and so after my freshman year of college I was looking for something to do between freshmore freshman and sophomore years and I was at home with my parents and they intro- well they I knew the guy but you know they kind of introduced me to him as more of a networking thing, like, hey, he works for Medtronics, you're looking for something to do this summer, maybe you can go, you know, sort resistors for them or something. <laughs> and uh, I, so I actually interviewed there, and it went okay, but I wasn't too thrilled really to get into an industry thing. I don't know. I didn't know what I wanted to do, you know. I was My default was to deliver pizzas for Domino's, which I did the summer before and I really liked, um, but... He collaborated with a guy at University of Minnesota. Um, they were working on a project together and he said, well, maybe you should go talk to this guy at the U and maybe there's something more scientific he can do. So I did that and that actually really clicked for me. So all that summer, I took the bus um, from the northern suburbs down to the University of Minnesota, I uh, got my first science experience. Then when I went back to college, uh, back to Stanford, I um, looked for what I could do at Stanford. Kind of replicate that, or kind of get more lab experience, and found a couple of positions. I settled into one that worked out really well. Um, and so, f- in junior and senior years, I ended up really getting a lot more into like lab culture, like doing science. And I didn't know normal people could do that. You know, I didn't know who scientists were, but I just figured they were come from genius families <laughs> or were rich or something. And but. That's not how it is at all. And so I I was glad I discovered that. And by the time I was a senior, you know, I'd taken the MCAT, so I was already for med school. And I really kind of had to sit down with myself and say, do I want to spend the next five years learning about the entire body uh, and everything about medicine? Or do I want to spend that five years and really learn in depth about the brain, which was for me the culmination of combining biology and electrical engineering. So I kind of made the hard choice of doing a PhD instead of an MD. Could have done both, but I still kind of felt like that would sacrifice maybe the depth I could mm-hmm. achieve achieve just doing a PhD. So that steered me away from medical school. But it was kind of a last minute thing, you know. Like I said, I, I studied all summer for the MCATs, took them, got good scores, then ditched it and went off for a PhD instead. Wow. Yeah, no, that's, I think that's you know, it's sort of awesome
2: to hear, you know, with the journey that you took in terms of figuring out those different things, because I see a lot of my peers um, and for myself too, there's a lot of, uh, I guess, career choices that BME could sort of lead you into, whether that's going mm-hmm. to the industry or, you know, sort of the very similar things to what you described. And so just sort of transitioning. So it sounds like you sort of settled on um, pursuing research as a sort of career. Could you tell us a little bit more about how you settled into your PhD and sort of how that transition was from going going from undergrad to your PhD?
0: Yeah, um, well, it was a big change. You know, I moved out of California, uh, drove across country, and moved to Boston. I, I went to, did my PhD at MIT in Cambridge. Um, I was super excited. You know, I looked at different places to do a PhD, and one of the reasons I chose MIT was just kind of the Cambridge environment I guess it's kind of you know legendary for just kind of this scholarly environment and I, you know for me that just sounded really exciting. Um, wow. So yeah getting into it though um, I was lucky I had a, a good lab. Uh, the PI was a little busy and kind of antisocial kind of like me now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope I'm a little better than that but, um, but the people in the lab were fantastic and really kind of helped me to get, you know, familiar with everything. And I don't know, I just kind of threw myself into it. And it was a great lab in the sense that um, everybody could be independent. And, and that was good and bad. Nobody was holding your hand. Um, so you had to kind of learn things on your own. But on the plus side, mm-hmm. you got to kind of do whatever you want and try things and do experiments. And so, you know, after a couple of years, uh, uh, you know, I had a couple of papers that I just kind of put out myself. My my PI was great too. He never wanted to be on a paper unless he actually did data collection on it. He was kind of old guard, wow. interesting, interesting guy. Wow, yeah. So as a grad student, I got these single author publications, which, yeah, I can't imagine really doing that in many other labs. And I think, I think that helped, I think that helped both in training me to be independent and to kind of go through the whole publication process firsthand, you know, without somebody kind of shielding me from everything. I, kind of got thrown into it. Um, so, uh, I don't know, you know, when you're 25, you have all this energy and ideas, and <laughs> it's just f- fun if you land in a place where you can express all of that uh, in kind of a safe environment. Um, it's It was just, for me, I just really flourished, and I really liked it. Um, so, yeah, worked out really well. I, just the people around, it was such a great community. Uh, my other fellow grad students uh, were fantastic. Um, They're all still mostly in science. And so now I see them as full faculty members and I see them at conferences and you never know. That's fine. Yeah. You never know even the people that you meet as undergrads, um, you know, keep those relationships close if you can, because 10, 20 years down the line, you never know what what these people will be and their careers and how you keep running into them and you know, you'll be the next generation doing things and making things happen. And, you know, it all kind of starts now as undergrads and in grad school.
1: That's, yeah, that's awesome. (laughs) Okay, yeah, we'll definitely
2: make sure to uh, heed that advice. (laughs) That sounds really cool.
1: That's definitely very inspiring. And also, I think very important to keep in mind as students are trudging through the basic sciences like physics and math before you make it to the more exciting engineering classes um, as we're moving on. As you... um, were finishing up your PhD, did you always know you wanted to stay a part of the academia community um, and, and go on to be a professor? Or were, did you have any thoughts of going into industry?
0: Yeah. Um, so I had two kind of flings with industry. Um, you know, my, after my freshman year, I interviewed at Medtronic and it didn't, like I said, didn't really click for me personally at, at where I was at that point. But then after my, I think it was my junior year, I thought I should give it another shot, so I interviewed for a, a positions in Silicon Valley, where you know where I was located at Stanford, and got a position at a mass spectrometer company doing electrical engineering on the manufacturing side. Oh, cool! Yeah, it was pretty cool because uh, you know I learned that I didn't like being in industry. <laughs> I <laughs> confirmed it. Um, it was fine and everything, but uh, for me personally, I felt like I was. Working for a company where the bottom line was making more money and doing everything to kind of be be more efficient to make more profit and you know for some people it, that's really exciting for me I you know I didn't really didn't really resonate with me like what I wanted to do with my life um, so you know it was interesting uh, I think in order to really understand whether you're good at something or whether you like something, you have to try it. You have to dive in. You'll never understand these things theoretically. You have to Mm -hmm. do it to see how it works. And um, so I'm glad I did that. But after that, I knew, you know, come hell or high water, I wanted to just do science and see, see how far I could go on that. I loved being in the lab when I made my first, you know, kind of discovery as an undergrad, watching the numbers come out of the isotope counter or whatever it was, and seeing that hypothesis was confirmed, you know, and knowing that you're the only person in the world who knows this thing about nature, that was such a rush. And, you know, for me, that's, I just kind of wanted to recapture that rush my whole life, I guess. (laughs) Kind of get addicted to it, I guess. Yeah. But it's fun.
2: Yeah. I think also that's really great advice. I think as undergrads, we often don't Realize that even um, PhD students and grad students, they have a lot of options ahead of them, and nothing is set in stone. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's really interesting to hear how you sort of took a hands-on approach in terms of figuring out what you wanted to do.
0: Yeah, I, I really recommend everybody do that. You know, uh, if you, you, you know, you might feel kind of pressured by peers or your family to do certain things, and it's always worth trying it and checking it out, but. If, you know, you're either actually not good at it, or you really don't love it, um, you know, explore other things, because this world and our, our society and science and engineering has, there are so many options. There are industry options, there are academic options, there are in between, where you kind of do a little of both, like R&D at a company, where you'll feel more like a scientist, even though you're working for a company, um, there's just a whole spectrum of possibilities and the best thing to do is to just kind of network, you know, any opportunity to meet friends, you never know that that'll take you or just acquaintances at conferences or in your neighborhood or friends of friends or now on social media. Uh, yeah, you you need to kind of just follow up on all those things and see what's out there.
2: I think that's really useful advice. It's, it sounds like your experience at MIT, you know, you're describing how one of the reasons you sort of were so excited about going there was the legendary like Cambridge environment. It, it sounds like from what you're saying that it sort of lived up to all your expectations. You know, here and I were just really curious about how how you found MIT sort of in the in the '90s. I know that must have been like a very exciting time. Could you tell us a little bit more about how that was?
1: When I think of MIT in the '90s, I think of Goodwill Hunting. Did you, uh, you have a similar <laughs> experience?
0: <laughs> ah. Yeah, I need to rewatch that again. I love that movie. Um, but yeah, it was kind of like that. It's uh, it's a very intense place. I think um, you know, it was fun. I applied there as an undergrad and got rejected, so it's nice to get my revenge and come back as a grad student. You know? <laughs> nice. That's um, awesome. I think as a as a PhD student, it's a very different environment than for undergrads. For undergrads, the undergrads I knew. Yeah, it was pretty stressful. It's kind of a cutthroat place, at least back in the nineties. Had that reputation. Um, all the undergrads I knew survived it and turned out to be you know, great scientists and people, just in general. Uh, but for PhD students, it was just uh, such a great intellectual atmosphere. Um, everybody around you was top notch, and kind of we all kind of drove each other. And also, you know, at the graduate level is in my department, at least, brain and cognitive sciences, which is course nine, uh, it was a very friendly place, at least amongst the peers. Like, uh, so you know, it's really interesting that people make the environment. Um, yep, MIT has great resources. It's in a great city with Harvard n- nearby, and the Harvard Medical School and other great universities in the area that make it a nexus for great science. But personally on a day-to-day level it's the people around you that make it work and yeah people who are open friendly helpful um you know for me that made the whole experience for me and kind of changed my life really you know seeing what what science could be in, in the best of circumstances you know
1: that's really cool to hear you say that <laughs> because what you're describing is almost identical to what my experience has been like a duke yeah everyone around me is just so bright and sharp and pushing everyone um and that's been one of my favorite parts of being an undergrad at duke but i guess it's moving moving towards more towards duke how how did you end up in durham
0: ah well after my phd i went to do a postdoc at the nih in bethesda maryland Um, did kind of a long postdoc because i ended up getting married in in the middle of it and to another scientist and um, so we were both on the job market together and it's very hard to solve that two-body problem. Yeah, wow, it's uh, <laughs> tough. Yeah, yeah, finding two tenure-track positions in the same city at least, and maybe in the same university ideally. But we're both kind of neuroscientists, so um, hiring two neuroscientists makes it doubly hard. Anyway, so um, 2001, uh, she moved here to Durham to work at the NIEHS, which is um, in South Durham. It's an institute of the NIH, which happens to be outside of Bethesda. Um, but I couldn't get a job down here at the time. So I took a job at University of Pittsburgh in 2004. And so we kind of had a long distance marriage for um, really for nine years after she moved here until oh, wow. yeah, until around 2009, there was an opening in Duke BME. And um through networking, uh, they kind of identified me as a potential candidate. Uh, basically, if I understand it, um, Dr. Warren Grill knew a guy at UNC Chapel Hill, uh, Ben Philpot, who was friends with my wife. They were in the same field and Ben told Warren about me and I was looking to move down here, you know. So it's just people talking to people and I got contacted by Duke BME if I was interested in moving here. Uh, my wife was pregnant at the time. So I was very interested in moving here <laughs> <laughs> and th- I can imagine things were about to get even more complicated. And so I came down and interviewed and things clicked and, uh, I really loved the environment here. And so I ended up moving here in 2010 I it's really fortunate it all worked out that way. And, but again, it's people driven, uh, as a lot of these things really are. So I moved here in 2010. Um, and uh, Duke BME. I'm also affiliated with uh, Neurobiology at Duke and the Center for Cognitive Neuroscience. And um, yeah, I've loved it ever since I've been here. It's, uh, it's comparable to University of Pittsburgh in the sense that both are very research-driven universities with excellent medical schools. Um, I find I find Duke to be a lot more collaborative. Like every project I've done here, almost, almost every one has been collaborations between my lab and other labs, um, either within BME or across the street at the medical school. Uh, a, it's, yeah, it's really a unique environment in terms of having engineering and the medical school right next to each other, everybody interacting all the time. Instead of, like at Pittsburgh, it was, they were a bus ride away from each other, kind of a mile away from each other. And at Hopkins, it's kind of similar. And so many places it's like that. But here we have you know, geography is kind of destiny in a lot of ways, and having everybody close by facilitates so much—just general talk and discussion and collaborations. At least when we're actually on campus, twenty twenty has been kind of a bad year for that. But yeah, so that's how I ended up at Duke, and I—I I hope to stay here the rest of my career. It's, um, you know, growing up, my family moved a lot. I had never lived anywhere until I moved here I'd never lived anywhere for more than eight years and now I've been here for 10 years so it's set a record and uh, yeah I really want to put my roots down and stay here for the rest of my career it's a great place to live great place to work
2: wow that's encouraging that you're saying wow I just want to spend my entire career here <laughs> that that I mean that's very I guess inspiring to <laughs> undergrads and you know I I think as Becky said before I've also like really loved my experience at Duke so that's That's very good to know that as a faculty member, you've enjoyed it so much as well.
0: Well, the undergrads are a big part of that um, for me. I I love the undergrads here. Um, Everybody is so driven but kind. Everybody helps each other. Um, Everybody just has, it's, the undergrads here are just so creative and um, yeah, just the energy is wonderful. I've had a lot of undergrads in my lab. They've been some of my best researchers. I took the position of director of undergraduate studies in 2014 with a little bit of fear. (laughs) I didn't know, you know, if I could handle the responsibility, the um, kind of the extra work. But I really love it um, because, you know, I like helping undergrads. I remember what it was like to be a college student and all the mixed up feelings you have, all the pressures you feel um but all the dreams you have too it's it's an exciting time and i remember it vividly so um i do my best to help the undergrads and i'm always inspired by them so it's it's been wonderful being dus
1: that's awesome
2: that was exactly what i what we wanted to ask about you know i know that we sort of a lot of bme's know us sort of the director of undergraduate studies but um we were curious you know what does that look like on a day-to-day basis you know what are you doing i know we you sort of are involved, we sort of see these big curriculum changes in these big events every so often, but we're sort of curious about how it all, you know, what's what's going on under the hood on a day-to-day?
0: Wow, yeah, there's a lot going on behind the scenes. Um, day-to-day, uh, it depends on the time of year. Um, so, uh, you know, it's kind of cyclic. Um, start of a semester is really busy, uh, making sure all the classes are up and running and everybody's all set there's no glitches. And then um, as soon as you start a semester, Duke makes us plan for the next semester.
2: (laughs) Wow. It's never ending. It's
0: never ending. You just get fall semester up and running and a week later, oh, you need to submit your schedules for spring semester. So. Oh my gosh. I I have a a really amazing um, colleague who's associate DUS, uh, Libby Buholtz, And so we've worked really well as a team the last six or seven years. Um, And I I wouldn't be able to do it without her and also the DUS assistant who's Cindy Mead. Um, But we all work together. Uh, We communicate really well, um, get the schedule up and running. Uh, It's a lot of uh, interacting with faculty, interacting with students, making sure things are gonna fit for the next semester. And then once that's up, uh, helping students through registration and all the advising um, and then in the background, of course, we always have new ideas for the curriculum, keeping it up to date. So there's a, a committee called the Undergraduate Affairs Committee, used to be called the Curriculum Committee. Um, and we meet at least once a month just to talk about how classes are going, how the curriculum's going, if anybody has ideas for improving the curriculum. And our chair, uh, Dr. Chilcote, often weighs in with great ideas too. And, uh, you know, and we, If we get a good idea, we research its feasibility and whether it will really add value to the program. So then if something kind of takes off, then we run with it and there's a lot of bureaucracy to make changes in a program, but we we go through that. Um, So that's always going on in the background. Um, On a day-to-day basis, really what I do is um, respond to a lot of emails and help people have Zoom meetings with students and committees um, related to the curriculum and just kind of keep things moving along.
1: That's cool. You, you kind of like, when, when describing uh, what your day to day is like, you describe like five different jobs. (laughs) (laughs) How do you, how do you stay balanced in what you enjoy? And like, I I know you from our conversation so far, it seems like you're very passionate about the work you do as a scientist. How do you balance the time you do doing research versus administrating, um, and then teaching? It
0: is uh, a challenge to balance all that. Um, I think, I, I guess I prioritize. Um, it's, you know, you want to be proactive and stay on top of things and keep things moving. But, you know, a lot of the job is being reactive too and uh, responding to people who need things. And so, so it's kind of email driven, really. Um, <laughs> and my priorities are to, um, basically, whenever I get an email from a student, an undergraduate, I try to respond right away. Um, I don't want it to get lost in my inbox. Um, and to anybody out there, if I've lost your email and inbox, I'm really sorry, I really try not to, and I always try to respond right away. Um, so that's kind of number one priority and keeps me on top of things. Um,
1: we can confirm when we emailed <laughs> you about this, you, you did respond right away, <laughs> he's not just saying it.
0: <laughs> I will admit, I forgot to put this on my calendar though, so you are is <laughs> very good you sent a reminder yesterday. <laughs> um, Anyway, so in, you know the other priorities are if people in my lab email me, I respond right away. Um, if the chair or the business manager in BME, uh, Ellen Ray, they email me, I respond right away. Um, beyond that, you know, I have to kind of prioritize and um, other things, other emails get answered later. You only have so much time. Um, I, you know, for my lab, I feel like I try to have an open door policy Anybody who wants to talk about things, I fit them in as soon as I can. Uh, I learned that from my postdoc mentor, uh, who is uh, Bob Wurtz, a really great scientist at the NIH. And I was surprised when I went to work in his lab um, that he literally had an open door policy. His office door was always open. He was the chief of the division. It was called the Lab of Sensory Motor Research. Uh, He was a very famous scientist in my field. and, you know, I'd come from a PhD experience where my advisor was similarly great, but um, not as accessible, but it was just really different than when I was a postdoc and he had this open door policy, he would drop everything he was working on, no matter, you know, who he was about to meet with or everything, he would drop it, close the door, and we'd have a meeting whenever I wanted to. And he would just sacrifice that time for his trainees and... I was, you know, that really impressed me. And I don't know if I can fully live up to that, but um, that's what I've tried to do in running my lab um, as much as humanly possible. Um, and beyond that, I also have a family, <laughs> a wife and a child. And especially during the pandemic, um, that's taken a lot more attention. You know, my, my daughter is doing remote, remote learning in seventh grade. It's really tough. Um so I spent a lot of time kind of uh, helping her with classes and assignments and kind of being a, a tutor at home. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's all a matter of priorities. During the day, I try not to work too much, um, especially in the evenings. I try to spend time with my daughter and um, doing other things around the house. Um, uh, for me, I'm kind of a night owl, so... Come 10 o'clock is when I finally get some peace and quiet and can get some work done. So I kind of work until you know, 10, until I fall asleep, you know, two or three in the morning. and go
1: to... You follow along with the undergrads. <laughs> yeah,
0: I know. Anybody, so who's e- anybody who's emailed me at one in the morning is probably shocked that I respond right away. And Yes, I um, can confirm but... <laughs> this. I
2: can confirm.
0: <laughs> but on, th- on the other hand, don't try to reach me in the morning. I'm very grumpy and tired. <laughs> <laughs> I like to have my mornings off and uh, you know, go for a walk and kind of chill a little bit and, and, and kind of actually get moving around 10 o'clock, which for a lot of faculty, that's ridiculous. They're up at six in the morning with the cows and chickens and getting things done. And that's great for them. Uh, but, you know, my peace and quiet when I'm my brain is most on happens to be in the middle of the night. Um, and, you know, I kind of spend all day thinking about things working on things in the background or little analysis things or whatever. And by the time nine or 10 o'clock comes around, I feel primed to write or to, you know, kind of really do research because I've thought about it all day. That's just how I operate. And in the morning, I'm just kind of out of it until mid morning. (laughs) I've always been that way and I always will be. Mm -hmm.
2: Well, I definitely sort of, I'm a huge night owl as well, so I can definitely (laughs) uh, identify with many of the things you just said.
0: The night, nighttime is beautiful. You know, everybody else is asleep. It's finally quiet. Go out for a a walk in the dark is really neat.
2: I completely agree. (laughs) You mentioned a little while back about um, Duke has a really great BME program, whether that's in the undergraduate sort of arena or the graduate space. And you mentioned a little bit about you know, curriculum changes or areas of innovation and sort of, I was really curious about how you go about that as the DUS, how you sort of approach that mindset on a day-to-day, you know, in terms of Mm -hmm. helping to push the boundaries of um, curriculum as, you know, as BME, as we know, is sort of exploding.
0: Well, it, you know, it's a um, kind of a reciprocal thing between ideas we have that are maybe just germs of an idea and getting feedback from uh, students and families. Uh, There are many levels to this. Like we do Blue Devil Days every spring where we meet with incoming students and prospective students. And we really listen to what the families ask us. Like, you know, what kind of jobs can you get with BME? How does it prepare you for not only research, but, you know, actually having a career in a company? And you can see how how the trends change over time. Uh, When I came here, 2010 through about 2015, there was a lot of emphasis on grad school and PhDs and MDs, and people asked a lot about pre-med. Maybe that was because we came out of the Great Recession, and people were still kind of worried about, you know, uh, how industry was going to make it, and maybe kind of Shelter in place, doing grad school for a while or med school. Maybe that's a little more secure of a job. But then around 2015 and onward, we got a lot more questions about the industry and jobs. I think you know the economy was a lot more secure and growing, um, so people became a lot more interested in commercial aspects of BME and entrepreneurial things and startups. Um, so you could you could hear that coming from the students in advising sessions from the parents at Blue Devil Days. So, and also of course, um, we have a very diverse faculty, many of whom have companies of their own and they can see the, the which way the wind is blowing too. So we all get together at, at uh, meetings, at faculty meetings and discuss these things. And you know trends start to make themselves apparent like uh, molecular and cellular biotechnology is becoming huge. Um, So our department needs to adapt to that and prepare students for careers in that. Um, In general, there's a lot more interest in going into industry now than there was 10 years ago. So, you know, we kind of throw around ideas. We talk about what might be feasible. Like, you know, about five, six years ago, I thought, um, well, we have this great Pratt Fellows program, but that prepares students for industry. What if we had a similar program for students who I mean for research but if we had a similar program for students who wanted to go to industry we could call it design fellows um, something like that and you know it's just an idea but fortunately our faculty get excited about things like that and when you have amazing faculty like Mark Palmieri and others on the design side you know they took it and ran with it so Mark Palmieri and Libby Buholtz uh, created the design fellows program and so much work went into that. Uh, but it just started as an idea. Um, our chair, Dr. Chocote had, um, the idea that we needed a lot more two semester design, um, classes because at the time we were only offering one semester design. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was kind of a, you could kind of get a smattering of experience in design, but it wasn't really, powerful enough to propel students into industry at high levels or make them really competitive at at interviews. So uh, with that idea, we created uh, these two semester design sequences that we have now, Um, one of which uh, uh, is, you know, focused on biotechnology, um, and the other of which is more electronics or kind of traditional biomedical engineering and
1: for sure. Even even just in my three and a half years here so far, like I've definitely seen curriculum changes. I was in the, f- I think I was in the pilot course of the freshman year design class, ah, um, mm-hmm. which was really cool to see. Oh, right, right, um, right. And-
0: that was, you know, inspired by the new dean coming in. So Robbie came in, Dr. Bellam and saw the landscape of what was going on here and the need for design, more of a what we call a vertical design program, starting first year and going all the way through senior year, instead of just saving it for last. And uh, he really made that happen, and so Engineering 101 was born.
1: That's incredible. I that's something I've really enjoyed so far is all my design courses. Um, Rowan and I are right now in a two semester design class. Great. Yeah, I definitely feel more like an engineer when I'm when I'm doing that.
0: And we want to offer more, so we're looking into more. Especially in the biotechnology side, more two-semester sequences. Um, Our students have really embraced it, and I I think about two-thirds of students do that instead of one-semester classes at this point.
1: Yeah. So one of the things that that I really liked about BME when I was picking it was that it fits such a wide range of possible careers, and even the field itself. Like some people are playing with cells and pipettes, and other people are (laughs) like coding all day. Yeah. Um, And it's all the same major. So how do you Work in that designing curriculum to fit that wide range of careers and just the field in general?
0: That is a big challenge. Um, such a diverse field. Um, you know, it kind of starts with the faculty, um, who we hire, um, making sure that we have representation, diversity, you know, not only cultural, ethnic diversity, but also just scientific, engineering diversity. There's, you know, so many. Little uh, points you try to uh, match um, to get a diverse faculty intellectually and culturally. Once you have that, and we're working toward that. um, Once you have that, though, you have the opportunity to uh, really touch on many subfields of engineering. Like now we have really wonderful um, machine learning faculty. big data faculty that we didn't have five years ago, six years ago, Um, a lot more biotechnology tissue engineering faculty than we had, say, 15 years ago. Um, Yet we still also retain the kind of the classic BME uh, faculty in uh, ultrasound and in neural engineering and simulation and things like that. Um, So once you have that in place, then you have the opportunity to offer different classes, um, Yeah, but that is a a tricky thing. You want to be able to cover everything. But biomedical engineering is such a broad field that you can't cover everything, but but you do your best. Um, And where we can't offer uh, certain specialties in the curriculum, students have the opportunity to learn that in labs. So one thing that's amazing about our undergraduates is how um, driven they are to join labs to do research um, takes so much time, but you know it's it 's really cool to see that the spark in them to actually get in the lab um, outside of the classroom and learn brand new things in really specific subfields, whatever that lab's working on so you know if you can get into a lab that matches your passions, your interests, you can learn a lot more in depth on specific things that we can't cover in classes. So it's a, it's a it's the whole environment I think that contributes to a broad training of our students.
2: It, you know, it's really interesting to see how those different like curriculum changes like the engineering courses or the design or the the first year design courses or sort of the senior design courses. It's interesting to hear how your perspective on how they sort of got off the ground and how they actually became a reality. I think there's so many areas of advancement in BME right now that are sort of exploding. What are sort of some of the, I don't know, I don't know if you're allowed to, uh, (laughs) spill any (laughs) secrets, I guess, but are there any, um, areas that you're excited about, like in the near future about, you know, new ideas that you're
0: allowed to disclose, I guess? Well, one thing we've been talking about for a few years, um, that has gotten a little sidetracked because of the pandemic and other things, um, is to, uh, really create two parallel tracks, um, uh, starting, starting around sophomore year. Um, so students can start specializing in either what we call kind of dry lab engineering, which is electronics, imaging, coding, things like that. Um, or kind of the wet lab track, which is genetic engineering, uh, tissue engineering, uh, all the wet lab stuff. Um, currently, students don't really get to start specializing until junior spring. Um, we'd like to see that, or some of us would like to see that start earlier, um, such that maybe even uh, going forward, not everybody would take BME 354, for example. If, if, if you wanna do CRISPR-Cas9 technology your whole life as your career, why do you care about op-amp circuits? Um, we hear that a lot from both faculty and undergrads. You know, on, on the one hand, BME 354 is um, talked about with reverence by most of our students as one of their most intellectually stimulating in classes in, in the curriculum. Yeah, and, I loved it. Yeah, it, it kind of brings everything together and you really feel like an engineer. Um, so it's currently kind of a debate going on. Um, do we want to keep that required for everybody? Or do we want to establish a parallel class um, that is similarly rigorous and uh, and rewarding, but at the molecular cellular level? And so then students would have an option of taking either BME 354 or this other class um, that would more quickly, I think, move them into uh, different tracks of specialty. Um, you know, it's kind of an educational debate. Do we want a common curriculum for all biomedical engineers up until some point like junior spring and then let them split off or is it better to provide that opportunity earlier and we it's hard it's a hard balance to reach and we're not quite sure where that where that you know the fork in the road should be like sophomore sophomore fall sophomore spring junior fall that's one thing that's going on in the background that we're trying to figure out
1: Cool. Yeah, no, that's, that's really cool to hear that you guys are always thinking and innovating about this. <laughs> so transitioning more to your research and the work that you do in your lab currently, if you were, let's just say, on NPR morning radio and someone had asked you to describe the impact of your research in maybe a minute or so, uh,
0: what, would you, what would you say to that? The impact of my research? Um, I would say that, you know, my lab's research is focused on understanding how um, circuits function in the brain. Um, So in the past, uh, when I was coming up as a grad student, there was a focus on individual brain areas and every lab kind of had their little fiefdom of a certain brain area. And I decided to kind of dedicate my life to looking at how those brain areas talk to each other. Um, So the impact of my research so far has been able, has been at at a basic science level um, demonstrating uh, how a, a couple individual circuits in the primate brain actually function uh, to tie together subcortical and cortical areas into a, a circuit for behavior, um, which I think has will ultimately have implications for understanding psychiatric diseases and uh, uh, motor diseases like Parkinson's and Huntington's disease. Um, and we continue to work on that uh, at levels ranging from just understanding how we move, how the body moves the uh, limbs and the eyes to understanding perception, how we make decisions, how we perceive the world. On the more engineering side, uh, my lab has been in a 10 year collaboration trying to understand how non-invasive neurostimulation works, especially when you apply magnetic fields to the head uh, using a procedure called transcranial magnetic stimulation or TMS um people have used TMS for a long time on NPR you can hear you know sponsored by a TMS clinic for uh, treating depression you you may have heard that in Durham Uh, so it's it's kind of like mainstream at this point and it's a fascinating technology because all you do is take a coil uh, of wire basically put it near the head pulse current through it and then by Maxwell's equations you end up with a magnetic field goes through the skull uh, and you get kind of a transformer once it reaches um, the uh, uh, conductive material, which is the brain. And so you get uh, electric fields in the brain and you don't have to do surgery or anything. It's it's really easy to use. Um, And if you put a TMS coil over a motor cortex, let's say, uh, you can make the arm twitch on the other side of the body. Wow. Yeah, no special training involved. But uh, it's been used for maybe 40 years or so as for lab research, and now it's FDA approved for treating depression and some other maladies. But we really don't know what it does to neurons. Um, You know, it's it's like a lot of medicine where you have a tool that works and so we go with it. But my understanding is we still don't really know how aspirin works. Um, You know, TMS is the same same way. Um, It works and we have a lot of ideas why it works. Um, But what my lab is doing is actually recording from neurons during TMS in the awake brain and trying to understand what TMS is doing to the activity of those neurons and the circuits that those neurons are connected with. And so I think, you know, that's going to have downstream uh, advances uh, and improvements to clinical application of the method by really allowing us to modify protocols for applying this stimulation in a way that you know it doesn't just make things a little better because you're doing trial and error experiments to see what parameters work best but actually understanding what it does at the biological level and you know designing protocols that are rationally based on what neurons actually do when they're experiencing these magnetic fields Uh, so hopefully you know my dream is that this will really revolutionize this technology and the ability to use it for a lot of clinical applications from psychiatric diseases to, uh, you know, movement disorders and others, yeah. So in a nutshell, that's what my lab does. Kind of basic science and engineering, but all kind of focused on uh, neural activity in the, in the brain and circuits that um, send signals around the brain and transform the signals. That's awesome.
2: Yeah. Wow. I mean, that sounds like almost like a perfect combination of (laughs) all the cool things about BME.
0: (laughs) Well, for me, it is. Um, But, you know, one thing to keep in mind, I didn't start out that way. You know, my undergraduate research was in, well, luckily I was in kind of a neuroscience lab, but it was neuroimmunology. I was studying multiple sclerosis and looking at macrophages and antibodies and stuff like that. And, how myelin gets stripped off of axons in these diseases has nothing to do with what I do now. But it was just, it was really important though, because it um, immersed me in lab culture. You could see how labs work. You get your first discovery, um, get your first papers, hopefully. And, you know, I I think that it's kind of a lesson that um, as an undergraduate, don't be too concerned about getting in a lab that is perfectly what you want to do with your life. Just, you know, get in a lab with a good environment and learn how science and engineering operate at, at the research level, because you won't get that in classes. You just have to experience it. So from, from hearing
1: you speak about your career from the beginning of your college experience till now, one thing seems to have been constant is your interest in neuroscience and neurology. Where, where do you think like your interest in the brain and all of that kind of comes from and and what about learning about the brain keeps you excited and coming back for more
0: that's a good question um well when i was in high school uh you know I was, there are pros and cons to growing up in a small town in the middle of nowhere south dakota right so you, you don't have a lot of opportunities in high school drive 100 miles to take the sats but um it's a small town everybody knows each other there was a hospital there um I was kind of interested in medicine. My friend's father was a doctor at the hospital. And he happened to have grown up with my mother in the same town, in another town in South Dakota. So they kind of knew each other. And uh, he wrangled me a job as being an orderly in the hospital at 16. So, yeah, so I just walked down to the hospital every day after school and on the weekends and during the summer. And got to do everything, you know, helped on the medical side of things, on the surgical side of things. You know, you learn a lot about medicine and just about life and death and everything. It's, it was a good experience as a teenager. And it also, you know, got me super interested in the body and, and medicine, and uh, especially what captivated me were um, brain problems, uh, how per- whole personalities could change if there was a tumor in the brain or, or things like that um, I th- that was probably where it really started um, and then as an undergrad i guess um, yeah, it's kind of idealistic but i you know thinking about what i wanted to do for a phd i just the way i look at it at it is um, we all only have one life and you should do the hardest thing <laughs> do, 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 wow <laughs> make it a challenge for yourself and for me that was either um, you know, studying astrophysics or quantum physics or studying the brain. To me, those are the two most challenging systems in the universe that I know of.
1: When most people start a sentence with, you only have one life, they don't usually follow <laughs> it up with, uh, so then you should make it as hard as possible.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, just try to fill up that life with something that is, will really captivate you and, and that you can try your hardest at, I don't know. That's how I looked at it when I was a 20, you know? Yeah, no, I love it. I love it.
2: <laughs> yeah. Wow. I, you know, you You mentioned that the other subject area you said that would be super hard in terms of a challenge would be physics.
0: Yeah. You know, when I had mentioned physics, you know, what really captivated me most was quantum physics. And I, I stuck around and got my master's in electrical engineering at, at Stanford before I left. And my, I tra- I tried to do a concentration in um, kind of, uh, well, I did kind of a minor, so to speak, in physics. And so I really got into a lot of quantum physics classes just because it was fascinating to me.
2: Wow. Okay. <laughs> That's really cool.
0: So, so humbling. Boy, <laughs> you, th- you think you're good at math and you think you're good at physics. Try to get it get into a graduate level class surrounded by actual physics students. I was so lucky to scrape out a B in that class. Um I learned so much though, but it definitely taught me that uh quantum physics was not my future. <laughs> <laughs> and I retreated to what I was both good at and liked, which was brain research instead.
2: <laughs> wow. That's that was that's brave of you to uh explore that though. I mean, I don't think many people would be uh venture out that far.
0: <laughs> uh yeah, I kind of yeah. I don't know if it was brave or foolhardy, but I survived and passed, passed the classes and learned a lot. So it was great.
1: <laughs> on that note, or I guess maybe on that note, we were wondering if you could, I don't know, if you had any mistakes throughout your career in your research or in, in decisions you made that you think would be useful for current undergraduates or anyone listening to to hear and to learn from?
0: Oh, uh, you know, all sorts of mistakes. Um I mean, it's hard to um, I, I, don't, I don't, I guess I, I tend not to look back on things as mistakes. Um, there are things that happen that you wish had gone other ways, I guess, and you learn from them. Sure. I and mean, there are no big glaring mistakes I can think of. It's just a, always a process of learning about, you know, kind of it, it, a lot of surprises, like um, learning how to run a lab. Um, when you've never really been trained to run a lab, um, you run into lots of mistakes, like, uh, boy, when I first started my lab, I wish I had written grants furiously for two years and got tons of funding. But, you know, I wrote one grant. It was amazingly uh, funded on the first round, and I kind of coasted on it for a while. And it is stupid enough, I, I should have learned, uh, I should have kept writing grants and kind of got buffer. You know, so that one kind of ran out, and I was kind of oh, uh, time to write, time to write more grants. And I didn't really have uh, the mentoring to kind of keep me in line that way, and I was too happy doing the science that was funded by that grant to to be responsible enough to, you know, kind of keep doing the writing in the background. So you end up with kind of financial stress, and um, but you know, you learn from that, and now you know try to keep the funding up, um, try to be a responsible lab manager and try to learn how to do that as you're doing it. Uh, yeah. And, you know, also just in approaching the training of students, uh, whether they're in your lab or um, in just the general undergraduate body, when you are a student, either an undergrad or a graduate student, you don't see the big picture of how everything is going with the people around you, um, and you can kind of look at them and say, man, they're they are so smart. They're so popular. They've got such a future ahead of them. And you know, you kind of get imposter syndrome or you kind of feel like you can't live up to that. I'll tell you, being on top of that, looking down and kind of seeing the whole undergraduate body and all the individual individuals in it and also the graduate students, I would just say everybody's different. Everybody has things they're dealing with. There is no one perfect student or ideal. There's no God among you. Um, you're normal. <laughs> and uh, you know, seek out help if you need it And because there's a lot of people to help you. I always kind of wished I would sought help more, I guess, when I was feeling stressed or when I felt like I was at an impasse maybe in my training or my research. And I was kind of stubborn or arrogant a little bit and not seeking out help or just kind of shy. I don't know. But, you know, kind of just just a broad mistake. I wish in my life I had uh, taken advantage of the kindness of uh, mentors more. Yeah. I don't know why I didn't, but that would have helped a lot. (laughs) And I encourage people to do that.
1: Yeah, it's really helpful to hear. I know it's like sometimes intimidating to reach out to people, especially like faculty mentors, say, hey, I, I, I don't know what to do, kind of, I, I'm struggling. But that's really great to hear from you that you wish you would have done more of that. Um,
0: well, when you're a that. student, you can, when you're a student, you know, at least for me, I often felt like, oh, I don't want to bother them. They're so busy. You know, who am I to take their time? <laughs> uh, but you, you don't do that. Don't do that. We're here to help. And um, yeah, don't be shy about that. Uh, it's really great to reach out and anybody who is a faculty member this is what they signed up for they they signed up to help people um, and that's part of our job so I wish I had done that more and I encourage people to do that more.
2: I wish I had spoken to you three years ago my very <laughs> when I in my first month here at Duke. Um, I wanted to ask since I guess as DUS, you sort of have a unique perspective on a lot of different things on campus, and especially in engineering. If if you were a Duke undergrad right now, w- what would excite you? What would you try to do, or what what would you be involved with? Um, you know, whether it's joining a specific lab or a specific program, or just I guess anything on
0: Duke's campus. Wow, great question. Um, BME first of all, <laughs> <laughs> I, just because I think, oh, boy, if you if you're interested in biology and Things that are quantitative, BME is the place to be, and and there's you know, just so much opportunity to do both basic research, or turn it into something that immediately helps people. So I don't know. I'm still a big fan of BME. Um, you know, I would, one thing I didn't take advantage of enough when I was an undergrad is going to talks and seminars on campus. You know, you see them advertised on the plasma screens around campus, at least in in a normal year. And I think undergrads don't realize it's for them too. You know, go to these talks, they're free. You know, no matter who it is, take a little time and you'll see what the cutting edge things are uh, that are happening right now. And, um, so yeah, uh, I think then you kind of learn what's out there and learn what to be involved in that may not be taught in the classrooms. Um, I am you know, part of the Center for Cognitive Neuroscience and also neurobiology departments. There's so much cool research going on in, in both of those places um, that can tie into biomedical engineering. Uh, so I don't know, I'd kind of wander the halls, meet people, uh, bug, peop- bug bug your professors after classes and just talk to them about what they do. Uh, within BME itself, uh, yeah, I think genetic technologies are re- really exciting and my lab's getting into that a bit. Uh, I would probably be all over uh, genetic engineering uh, if I were 20 years old right now. <laughs> so my life might have a completely different tra- trajectory than uh, it did when, back in 1990, 1988. Uh, to me, that's really exciting. Um, but there's so much that's going on. I mean, it all depends on who you are, what you like to do.
1: Dr. Sommer, thank you so much for taking the time. We really appreciated the opportunity to talk to
0: you. Uh, We learned a ton. Hopefully everyone else will as well. All right. Well, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. This has been really fun.
2: That was great to talk to Dr. Sommer. I mean, he gave so much great advice. I really wish that every incoming freshman engineer could hear that because that's just awesome.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. I wish I had heard that freshman year. Um, It was also really cool to hear about how he's working really hard with other professors and students and administrators to constantly uh, innovate and transform the curriculum to keep up to date with industry trends and what people are looking for.
2: Yeah, I mean, he mentioned several things about not only about how BME has changed um, in the past five years, but also what he's looking to do. He and his colleagues are looking to do in the near future, and I'm really excited for what's in store for future BMEs.
1: I hope you guys enjoyed. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify at After Office Hours. And you can follow us on Instagram at after double underscore office hours. Stay tuned for more episodes. We have a lot of exciting professors lined up and we hope to see you guys next time.